0: Previously
1: uncommittable. The muscle was gone, his face was almost skeletal. And this was in a period of a few months. Seeing that and just feeling like you were so broken. A section twelve is an order of emergency commitment that finds that there's reason to believe a persons not hospitalized they'll be dangerous to themselves or others. The reality
0: is,
2: when people get to the door of the psych facility, they may be presented with this paperwork and not informed about the rights that they're
1: giving up by signing in voluntarily.
0: This is Committable. About two years after I was first committed, things had gotten worse, much worse. I had lost more weight and developed massive edema, which basically means that my body was producing a lot of excess fluid that accumulated in my head while I slept and then flowed down to my legs as I moved about during the day. At one point, I ended up in the ER because my legs were so swollen with edema that I couldn't bend my knees and fell down the stairs of a bus. I went to my physician, Dr. Weitzman, to get blood drawn for tests, primarily to try and figure out what to do about the edema. When Dr. Weitzman spoke with me about the results of those tests, he said that I needed to be admitted to a hospital immediately. So I admitted myself to Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Not long after arriving at the hospital, I was transferred to an intensive care unit because my potassium levels had dropped to 2.1. I don't have a lot of context to really comprehend what that number means, but from what I understand, a potassium level that low indicates a significant risk of heart failure. Here is my brother, Tom, talking about what he remembers from seeing me at Cooley Dickinson.
2: I remember at the time that you were in there, I had never seen you looking worse. I had never been more scared of how frail you looked. Not just thin, but frail. Um... Pretty much every time we visited, while you admitted that things were rough, you always tried to play it like you were like i more okay. Like you know, I'm I'm sure I'll be out. It'll be sorted out soon. It's not that bad. There was like a mountain of denial. Whether you yourself were convinced of it or were trying to convince yourself by saying it, I'm not sure.
0: I admitted myself to the hospital on a Friday. I was transferred to the ICU by Saturday. By Sunday. My potassium levels stabilized, and I was transferred out of the ICU and placed on another floor for medical observation. And on Monday morning, I awoke with a horribly fluid-filled face and looked up to see Dr. Weitzman sitting next to my bed looking down at me. Weitzman essentially communicated that he was worried that I might die and that he no longer wanted to be responsible for my treatment. So he had coordinated to have a psychiatrist come and commit me. He began communicating all of this literally within seconds of me waking up, and then he left. Not long after Weitzman left, psychiatrist Killian O'Connell arrived in my room holding up two forms, a conditional voluntary in his right hand and a section 12 in the left. After a brief introduction, Killian held up the conditional voluntary and said, either you sign this one, he then held up the section 12, or I sign this. Killian then said that he didn't have time to wait for my answer, so he handed both forms to someone who had entered the room with him and said, If he doesn't sign the conditional voluntary, then you sign the section 12. At the time, I didn't really understand how a conditional voluntary worked, but I knew for certain that I never wanted to be section 12 again. So, I signed the conditional voluntary, and I have always wondered... I have always wondered, how is that allowed? How is it acceptable to walk into a hospital room, threaten someone with involuntary confinement, and then leave before the ultimatum is even answered? How is that okay? How is that legal?
3: Well, it's, I I mean, I think it's misleading. It's coercive. But if they were to say, if you don't sign the conditional voluntary, we could commit you, that statement wouldn't be true.
0: To try and better understand situations like this, Committable producer Jim McQuaid spoke to Lauren Roy from the Mental Health Legal Advisors Committee.
3: My name is Lauren Roy. I'm a staff attorney at Mental Health Legal Advisors Committee in Boston, Massachusetts. I have been working with the committee for a little over 17 years.
4: Could you
2: give a little bit of background about Mental Health Legal Advisors?
3: Sure. So Mental Health Legal Advisors Committee is a state agency organized under the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. It's the only state agency of its kind. And our mission is to represent indigent clients in the Commonwealth that have mental health concerns and or are perceived to have mental health concerns. So our phone number for our office is posted on inpatient psychiatric units. So we get calls from clients wanting to know about their discharge rights, their admission rights, their privileges, you know, all kinds of questions.
2: So when people first reach out to you, I'm curious about the degree to which they understand this situation that they find themselves in, uh, as well as their state of mind.
3: So I don't think people are commonly aware that when you go onto a psych unit, the doors are locked, that you're not free to leave, right? This is why due process rights trigger, right? This is why you have a right to an attorney, you know. So clients used to say when we would You know, bring them up to the unit when I worked in hospitals, and clients still say this now. Some are shocked by that. They're shocked that the doors are locked. They thought it would be just like any other hospital unit. And they get initially very, very scared. And it is scary, right? I think it's not like going to a medical floor because you broke your ankle. You're not able to just get up and leave if you wanted to. You know, that's why we get a lot of calls. We get a lot of calls on, on that initial admission process because. A, a lot of the papers that the client signed don't even really, they don't understand what they're signing for the most part. The papers are thrown at them. And even if they're explained to them, even if they're witnessed by people, which they all have to be, um, the clients, you know, they're overwhelmed at the time, right? And in some of their mental status, maybe off anyway. So it's just a really hard time for them to understand. And they have several papers to sign, not just the legal papers. It's you know, the regular hospital admission. It's like a stack of papers at once that they need to look through and our frequent call is about, I don't know what I signed. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't know what status I'm on. I don't know if I'm here voluntarily or not. And a lot of people think they're there against their will, even when they're there on a conditional voluntary, because they felt like they didn't want to be there. So you'll frequently hear people who say, oh, I signed a conditional voluntary, but I don't want to be here. They told me if I didn't sign this, they would commit me.
2: So when people reach out to you, they're reporting that they're sitting in this room with all these papers they're scared they're overwhelmed and someone on the staff tells them either sign this or we're going to commit you
3: pretty much or we'll hold you under section 12 which will follow the process of you. yeah so that
2: just really jumps out at me is is that legal
3: so i mean i think we're not there during that time right but that's what people have reported sort of it goes on and you know, I've seen it go on that way, right? Like, cause you can't be on a unit hospital unit without being on one or the other, right? So you're either on a section 12 or a seven and eight, if you've been committed or you're on a conditional voluntary. Okay. So it's either, or, and I think it's presented to clients that way. Is it legal? No, but I think, I think it's, it's somewhat true if they say it that way, but It's not giving them the full picture.
2: But it is illegal to present things that way?
3: Well, it's, I mean, I think it's misleading. It's coercive. But if they were to say, if you don't sign the conditional voluntary, we could commit you, that statement would be true.
2: I'm just curious what the implications are for using the term voluntary at that point.
3: I know, know? I know. I think that that's hard. And it's called the conditional voluntary for that reason, because it's conditioned.
2: But does the person in the situation where they're confronted with commitment is there somebody there that sits down and explains things to them? Before
3: we're signing the paperwork is the person who should be reviewing all of it. Should be. Should be, yeah. And when you ask people, our clients will say that they never heard that or they didn't really explain that. You know, we, we get complaints about that a lot.
2: So in theory, there is supposed to be a person who's explaining all of these rights to them, but that doesn't happen all the time.
3: Right, and that's very hard to, to monitor, right? And even harder to prove, right? Because the psychiatrist is signing off saying that they've done it. But we know from the outcomes and what clients tell us that whatever was said, it wasn't said in a way that they understood it, which is why people call us, right? And then you have the human rights that trigger once you get on the unit, which we have six fundamental rights now in Massachusetts.
0: Here is committable contributor Michelle Stockman with the six fundamental rights of persons receiving services at inpatient mental health facilities in Massachusetts.
1: Six fundamental rights of persons receiving services at inpatient mental health facilities in Massachusetts, prepared by the Mental Health Legal Advisors Committee, the right to reasonable access to a telephone to make and receive confidential calls, the right to send and receive sealed, unopened, uncensored mail, the right to receive visitors of your own choosing daily and in private at reasonable times, the right to a humane environment, including living space, which ensures privacy and security in resting, sleeping, dressing, bathing and personal hygiene, reading and writing, and in toileting. The right to access legal representation. The right to reasonable daily access to the outdoors.
0: After I signed the conditional voluntary, I was confined to a wheelchair and wheeled into a psych ward with the distinct and now familiar click of magnetically locked doors shutting behind me. My mother found me on that psych ward, not long after I was wheeled in. Here is what she remembers. I remember going to the psych ward. Um, I've thought a lot about that day and that image, walking into that locked ward and seeing you sitting there in a wheelchair on the side, and the tears are just streaming down your face, and I know there's nothing I can do. I want, like, help to grab you and run out that door, and I know they're not going to let me and then trying to figure it out and trying to talk to Killian. (sighs) Fucking asshole. Um, Trying to explain to him that some of the stuff we were already doing and this blah, 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 and this and that. And he's just looking at me like, yeah, little girl. Um, Mm -hmm. And he totally ignored everything I had to say. And I couldn't do anything. Those tears that she saw were from fear, from feeling helpless, and from confusion because I didn't understand. I didn't understand Why did this happen again? I went to Dr. Weitzman because something was wrong, and I wanted to work on it. I asked for help. And when he said that I needed to go to the hospital, that's what I did. I admitted myself. I complied with treatment. So what happened? At what point in all of that did involuntary commitment become necessary? Here is Committable Contributor Brian Patrick-Williams reading an excerpt from medical records written by Dr. Weitzman on the day that he told me that I needed to admit myself
2: to the hospital. History and Physical, Robert Weitzman, M.D., January 11, 2002. Assessment, severe anorexia nervosa with hypokalemia hypernatremia. Plan, will admit, will recheck labs, EKG. Psychiatric consult will be obtained. I do think that once his electrolytes are normalized, Psychiatric admission is appropriate.
0: Dr. Weitzman asked me to admit myself to the hospital and began coordinating to have me committed before I ever got there. I was on that psych ward for five weeks. As part of my treatment, I was confined to a wheelchair. I saw violence between patients. During mealtimes, I was forced to sit alone in a hallway in front of the nurse's station. I was committed for anorexia, but multiple times logistical errors resulted in me sitting alone in that hallway, without being given any food, while every other patient could be heard eating behind me. And when meals did arrive, Killian and the dietitian had decided that, quote, the patient was put on a restrictive plan to decrease his use of calories to help him gain weight. I don't really know what that means, but I do know that they intentionally restricted my caloric intake and then threatened to strap me into a stationary chair and insert a food tube when I didn't gain weight on their plan. I spent five weeks on that psych ward and when they finally let me go, I was given a bill saying that I owed the hospital thousands of dollars for involuntary treatment. I understand that there were legitimate, serious medical concerns when I admitted myself to that hospital. I can understand that Dr. Weitzman probably felt somewhat powerless to really help his patient. I can understand that Killian probably perceived what he was doing as ultimately being in my best interest. But what I don't understand, what I have never understood, is if you see a patient who voluntarily asks for lab work, voluntarily admits themselves into a hospital, agrees that they need help, agrees that they need to gain weight, How do you see that patient and conclude that manipulation, coercion, and an involuntary commitment are the appropriate response? How do you do all of that and actually believe that you're helping? To try and better understand this type of situation, Committable Producer Jim McQuaid spoke to Psychiatrist Paul Pori.
1: My name is Paul Puri. I'm a psychiatrist in private practice in Los Angeles where I do uh, medication management and various kinds of talk therapy. I have an assistant clinical professor position at UCLA where I teach residents how to do therapy. I write for TV. I have a mental health tech startup company called Udify, which is trying to sort of create a centralized supportive mental health-like space where people can connect your resources wherever they are in the mental health spectrum. So a lot of stuff that we're doing.
0: Jim asked Paul about what it is like to be a psychiatrist, someone who has to decide whether or not to authorize an involuntary commitment.
1: It's a mixed bag, and most psychiatrists acknowledge it's a mixed bag. You know, We all go to medical school. Some people specialize in surgery, and we specialize in the brain and mental health. And most people didn't go into that with the plan or desire to you know, involuntarily commit people. Most people are very patient aligned and had intention from an early point in life. But then when you get into training and you work in hospitals, the state has sort of handed this responsibility to the hospitals and the psychiatrists on staff to make these decisions. And so it becomes an individual versus state's rights kind of thing, where the state, so to speak, and the psychiatrist as a proxy is deciding that this person can't make decisions for themselves, or that at least they're justified to hold them to decide on that point for a little bit and have a period of observation.
2: So the responsibility comes from the state.
1: Yeah. I mean, every state's laws are a little different. You know, I'm here in California. We have a 72-hour civil commitment called a 5150, and then there's a 14-day follow-up if you apply for it which um, the 5150 basically is kind of a free pass, there's no hearing, a 5250 you have, a, there's a hearing that has to happen with a hearing officer and the patient gets an advocate, their own kind of lawyer. And then that's a 14 day hold in addition to the three day.
2: So when you say if you fill out the 14 day, that means the psychiatrist or the person who's- generally
1: okay. Though actually um, sometimes it'll be filled out by other people. So like you can actually have the applications filled out by um, police officers, In California, park rangers can actually do it, emergency physicians sometimes do it because they're the first pass in terms of evaluating people. But then typically the psychiatrist has to sign off on it because they're the ones bringing them into a psychiatric hospital.
2: When you say the state has handed this responsibility, is this an imposed responsibility? Is this something that the field would rather not have on its plate, do you think?
1: It depends on who you talk to. There's some psychiatrists who I know who are friends who are much more libertarian, and they sort of take the view of like, look, people should, the comparison I'll make is like, look, if people have the presence of mind to want to kill themselves and complete a suicide, then they should have the freedom to do that. And, you know, there's others who sort of take the stance that basically we're we're dealing with brain disorders is the alternative sort of point of view. And that these brain disorders can distort people's judgment because it distorts their thinking it distorts their emotions and distorts their impulsivity or impulse control and so when you put those kinds of things together you can get people who do things that they might regret otherwise and as well as with people with what we call thought disorders like psychotic disorders it can distort sort of their um, their senses So they may be hearing things that are very detached from reality and maybe acting on those misperceptions or hallucinations. And so those kinds of things, for lack of a better term at this moment, put someone not in their right mind. And so they need sort of a substituted decision maker. And so that sort of is put on the, the shoulders of a psychiatrist temporarily. And then generally, if there are people who have much more persistent problems, And they may end up being in a position of what's called a conservatorship here in California, where someone, you know, might be committed for up to a year or have their rights taken away for a year. A judge takes that away and then the judge makes other decisions such as whether they can own a handgun, they can actually have their voting rights removed, which is kind of pretty extreme, I think. So there's a lot of stuff that goes kind of the more someone um, is thought to not be able to take care of themselves.
2: So if you're in a position where ultimately you're the one who signs off on a form, whether it's, you know, you or some other, you know, theoretical psychiatrist out there, it is a massive decision in the sense that to commit someone is to take their rights away on one hand. But on the other hand, you know, you could be facing someone potentially killing themselves or committing other sort of acts of harm. So it's a very high stakes decision, no matter which way you go. What is just for you that, experience like. Not how you make the decision, but just what does it feel like to be in that position?
1: In the beginning, it's really, it's really uncomfortable in various ways. One of which is like I never really wanted to be in that position. And not just because of the stakes and like the fear of making the wrong decision, but it's sort of the degree to which it becomes a paternalistic system in terms of you as a proxy or an agent of the state sort of making this decision to take away someone's rights temporarily. That's not something that I particularly identify with, but then the, as you get to see the degree of what we sometimes call psychopathology, which is you know, the different ways that people can manifest a mental illness, you really see that some people do need the help and they do need the protection. Um, when someone is really in the throes of a serious psychotic episode, letting them stay on the street is really, it's kind of neglectful and they need more help, unfortunately, than they may be able to accept at that point. If you get into more of the sort of theories around psychosis, there's things like the kindling theory, which is that the longer you let psychosis go untreated, the worse it can get. There's variations and counter opinions to that, but there is some serious evidence to support basically like intervening earlier with people in that situation. So that it seems
2: like it would make the process even more difficult because the idea is that rather than just intervening when a person is at the point where they're at this crisis, there is there pressure to intervene before that
1: point? That's going to vary by state by state in terms of the room you have to intervene sort of as things are getting worse. But generally, um, at least in California, we side much more on patients' rights. The the courts and, and in my own experience with hearings and dealing with this, you generally really have to have someone who's relatively in the throes of an illness. The threshold is pretty high to hospitalize someone. You know, if someone, for example, has a um, plan to complete suicide in a month from now, you can't actually hospitalize them, or you're not Mm -hmm. supposed to be able to. I'm sure there's people who skirt the law or or press the boundaries of that, you know, or they'll say, you know, I'm going to do it five years from now, or I'm going to do it if these jobs don't work Mm -hmm. out whatever the thing is, you can't actually preemptively hospitalize someone, because what are you going to do? Keep them locked up for years Mm -hmm. on the possibility that something happens? The system isn't designed that way. I mean, it's hard enough to get insurance to pay for someone to stay in the hospital a week, let alone a month or longer. So, the threshold's pretty high.
2: Is there an official threshold in California?
1: Is there a standard or? The criteria, you know, on the forms is basically, um, danger to self, danger to others, or what Mm -hmm. we call grave disability, which is, um, inability to manage food, shelter, or clothing due to a mental illness. And so the threshold in terms of danger to self is generally like considered to be sort of an acute threat in both of these, an acute threat to self or acute threat to others. Um, again, is there some room for interpretation with that? Generally, it's in the, the situation. So if someone has written a suicide note, that's considered acute enough. If someone is saying they may do something in the future, that's generally not. And so it's it's kind of in the present situation is, is sort of the threshold. I'm sure there's a proper, I'm not an attorney. Um, let me see how to put this as, as a non-attorney from my understanding. I took a forensics course once um, in terms of forensic psychiatry. And basically there, is, um, there are decisions that can be made in different types of courts based on like, it's like reasonable doubt is like a comparison. And basically these things end up breaking down to sort of percentages actually of evidence. And so I think that the threshold gets higher in terms of proof as you get further along within the mental health system. So the, the degree of proof that has to be made to conserve somebody and put someone on conservatorship is much higher than it is to, say, do a 72-hour hold. And especially because the 72-hour hold is much harder to sort of challenge. By the time you get into the courts, like a day or two could have passed. And so if a patient has a lawyer, for example, they could do like a writ of habeas corpus or something to try to challenge and get themselves out immediately.
0: The relationship between psychiatrist and patient is sometimes viewed as oppositional as individual versus state's rights. I think this perspective can be applied to both sides of the relationship. The psychiatrist, as an individual with a very focused type of training, is interacting with the legal authority given to them by the state. And the patient, who is not necessarily a type of person, but is better defined as a person in a particular type of situation, the patient experiences the legal authority exercised by a psychiatrist through the buffer of legal protections granted to patients by the state. So in theory, there is a balance, legal authority and legal protection. Unfortunately, in my experience, it doesn't really matter what legal protections I have if the psychiatrist attempting to commit me isn't aware of those protections. Here is Steve Schwartz from the Center for Public Representation discussing some of the complications that can arise when people involved with involuntary commitments have different understandings of the law.
4: I think what you often see is, and this is a common problem in all mental health legal interactions, whether it be around drugs and involuntary treatment or hospitalization or anything else, is that although conceptually, there are three separate findings that have to be made. And each finding is independent and distinct. Does the person have a serious mental illness? Is the person a serious risk to themselves or to others or unable to take care of themselves? And three, is there a less restrictive alternative? What you often see is that instead of being three independent findings, that they become intertwined and interdependent you see lots of situations where what's really happening is they're starting at the back issue the person has no place to live they're homeless Uh, they're not willing to go to a certain shelter or something else like that so there's a concern that there's no alternative meaning no safe place for them to even sleep so that shows that the person's not able to take care of themselves so you you meet the third standard then you meet the second standard because you can't take care of yourself. And if you can't take care of yourself enough to even know like where to sleep or where to eat, that must mean you have a mental illness because you must be confused and disoriented. So although the law reads, you go in the opposite order. So if you don't find the person has a serious mental illness, you don't ask the next question because if they don't have a serious mental illness, even if they were dangerous to themselves, you know, because they had a terminal illness and they were not willing to continue to, you know, take cancer treatment. But they were quite mentally capable. But they said, you know, I just kind of had it. I'm gonna in my life or not take this or not do that. That person should never get committed because they don't have a mental illness. They may be dangerous to themselves. They may be, in that sense, in fact, articulating an intention to take their life. But they're not mentally ill. They wouldn't get. Shouldn't be committed.
0: The law is often viewed as separate from the relationship between patient and psychiatrist. But when it comes to involuntary commitments, the law is not separate from the conversation. The law is the conversation. Because without the law, I simply say, no thank you, and get to go home. Here is committable producer Jim McQuaid speaking with psychiatrist Paul Porrey again.
2: And so. When you are in the position where you are in the presence of someone who may fit into one of these three categories, danger to self, danger to others, or grave disability, what's that decision-making process like? How do you go about assessing a, a person in this situation?
1: Well, each of those are pretty different, and it depends on the context. Um, so I've worked in private hospitals, academic, VA, as well as some county facilities, county emergency rooms, county urgent cares. And basically, those sort of end up creating situations on how someone is presented to you. So one version, let's say I was when I was working in a county ER is pretty common is the police bring someone in. And so they'll bring someone in, they'll fill out the basic paperwork and their situation might be person was running in traffic, screaming at traffic without any clothes on, and then shouting about God. And so, you know, they're not mental health professionals, but they say, this person seems crazy, quote unquote, to me. And so we're going to bring him into a psych facility for evaluation. What our job then is to do an assessment to the degree to which the person can communicate and degree to which we can get information about them to understand what's going on. And so that might mean that this person is intoxicated. They could be on meth or cocaine or something that can cause hallucinations. So we're gonna get a toxicology. We're gonna talk to them to the degree to which they'll talk back to us and answer questions. And then if we have collateral sources, we'll try to get those. So what did the police see? If we can get ID on them and we can talk to family members or friends, we'll get that information so we can get a fuller picture and then sort of decide, is this, based on all this information, is this a problem that is actually impairing their ability to take care of themselves? So, you know, you could make an argument in that case for danger to self because they're running in traffic that's dangerous behavior. Was it intentionally to hurt themselves? We'd be trying to determine that. And then inability to manage food, shelter, clothing would be made as a, an argument that they're not dressing themselves in public, that they're running around naked. So that would be an argument for that aspect of great disability. So was that? based on a psychotic process, such as I had a patient who used to run around naked because he thought he could escape the devil faster that way. He'd be faster without clothes on. That was mm-hmm. his thought process with it, which internally yeah. makes sense. There's a logic to it. Exactly. And that's true with most psychotic disorders. There's an internally consistent logic. So basically, is this something that is temporary and that can be treated you know, immediately or that will abate as their intoxication goes away? Or is this more of a persistent problem, such as schizophrenia, where... We have concern that they're going to need a longer period of hospitalization or at least a longer period of observation. So sometimes we're in a position of not knowing, you know, we're acting on incomplete information. They're clearly psychotic. They won't answer any questions. Their urine toxicology was negative. We can't get any other information on them. Okay, we're going to need to hold them for a few days to try to figure out what's going on. Give them maybe a little bit of an antipsychotic if they'll accept it and then see what happens. So that's sort of a process for that. Danger to self and danger to others are their own unique situations because danger to self is like who decided that they are there. So did a family member have concern about them? Did they bring themselves in? We get people all the time, and I don't work in a hospital full time anymore. I just consult or or teach. But people will come to check themselves in, and they'll do it on these very loose terms such as like, I'm worried I'm going to do something. And so it's very sort of incomplete. And generally, if those people are hospitalized at all, because there's usually bed shortages at hospitals all over the country, then they'll get admitted voluntarily, not on a hold involuntarily. But then, you know, sometimes people will get brought in because they are planning something, but they're denying it. And so, you know, you get all these variations in situations. And so if you don't quite know, so let's say – somebody got brought in with an overdose but they deny that they actually tried to kill themselves they said oh i only wanted to go to sleep but i did take 20 sleeping pills now we're in a situation of saying okay that doesn't quite seem plausible it's concerning i probably need to hold this person to evaluate longer and maybe to medically stabilize them too So I'm gonna hold them to try to get more information and see if they'll open up about what happened. But there's enough evidence here that they took 20 pills and not two or three that I could say, okay, this is worth hospitalizing someone for a few days for further observation to see are they going to try to do something else to hurt themselves, and can we try to get to is there underlying depression and, and things like that.
2: When you are in the position to make these kinds of assessments, do you feel self-doubt sometimes? Do you feel like, relentlessly confident? I mean, what's <laughs> it's like? What's the what's the experience uh, <laughs> for just for you?
1: I'd say it varies. So sometimes you know you say like, this is what the law was written for. This is a slam dunk sort of situation. It's very clear that they need to be held. And sometimes, you know, the patient will challenge that and they'll get a hearing and you'll lose. Even though you think it's a slam dunk, like it's so obvious that this person isn't together. You know, they're paranoid and, you know, they've been building, you know, a shelter inside of their apartment to shield themselves from microwaves and aliens and whatever else. But they're really articulate. And so they're able to convince like a judge or a court advocate that they shouldn't be held and they win. And so sometimes being feeling very right doesn't really matter. And sometimes there are situations where you say, I really am not certain, but I think there's a danger here if I let this person out right away. There's too much uncertainty. And so I'm going to hold in California, the 72 hour hold is intended to be an observation period it's intended to sort of gather more data to really see is this person ill enough that they need more help from Mm -hmm. the system and where they can't take care of themselves or that they're a danger. There's a, a lot of uncertainty that can happen with this and sometimes you talk it out with colleagues to sort of get their perspective on it and try and get also like, are other people on board with this? So sometimes the family is really in support of it, that can sort of help your case. And sometimes the family really wants to take them home And sometimes that'll soften the decision and say, okay, you know what, I think I'm okay sending them home because there's 15 people that are going to be watching on. So if they need to be brought back in, they will. And sometimes the family is very encouraging to bring them home, except they're very naive and they don't really understand what they're dealing with. Those cases, you know, it could go either way.
2: It seems like the role of the 72-hour period and the potential 14-day commitment periods are a combination of crisis management, observation, and preparing the person to re-enter life. It sounds less like there's a focus on not. I gotta hate to use the phrase healing the patient, or it's it's you know we're dealing yeah, with the yeah, yeah, right?
1: system is most definitely not designed for really creating a healing environment. I mean there are exceptions to that, and and you know if people are in. Sort of private pay situations, if they can pay out of pocket and they go to, you know, Sierra Tucson or one of these very prestigious places, then they can go for months at a time. And then basically you're in a much, you are able to sort of address like deeper issues and really manage Mm -hmm. it. But the larger psychiatric hospital system isn't really designed for that anymore, which is a really lamentable thing. I have a mentor who. He said, you know, back in the day, this is like 60s, so you know, we could put someone in the hospital and insurance would just pay for it for months and you could really get somebody better. And we wouldn't have to worry about how long we could keep them and all these other issues. It's not really designed to deal with the deeper problems and really heal the person or get them all the way back to whatever we want to call normal. I don't even use the term normal. but
0: To understand where we are in this conversation about involuntary commitments it can be really important to understand how we got here. Here is Steve Schwartz again, discussing some of his experiences working as an attorney focused on mental health law in Massachusetts.
4: So it's important, Jesse. um, When we started our work, which was in the early 70s, many states had no provision at all for what's called emergency detention. In fact, they even had no serious protections for long-term commitment. But as a result of some civil rights cases that were brought in the late 60s and the early 70s that held that you could not deprive a person with psychiatric disabilities of their liberty without a hearing, without a good reason, without the right to a lawyer, states began to reform their laws. Massachusetts was one of the first to do so. And when it did it, it actually required a fairly in-depth process and a pretty rigorous standard for long-term commitment. Long-term commitment was for six months or a year or longer, which was novel across the country because there were no protections in many, many states. So Massachusetts was one of the states that set up these more rigorous standards and procedures to safeguard the inappropriate deprivation of freedom.
0: When Paul recounts a perspective from his mentor that in the 60s and 70s, psychiatrists could keep people in hospital for long periods of time and really focus on getting that person better. From a certain perspective, that could be true. But from another perspective, in the 60s and 70s, people could be held in hospital for psychiatric treatment for potentially indefinite periods of time because there were virtually no laws protecting them. This perspective could also be true. But when it comes to a difference of perspective, this is not a debate. This is not a simple disagreement. Because when it comes to involuntary commitments, one side of the conversation has virtually unchecked legal authority to detain the other. Here is one last segment from the conversation between Jim McQuaid and Paul Porry.
2: And This is the fascinating, but also seems like impossible challenge that you guys face is that you are making decisions based not on what's actually occurring in the person's head but what signals are they presenting right so if somebody is composed then they have that social skill to hide whatever it is because they know how to navigate the situation they know how to hide their symptoms versus someone who isn't composed uh, and doesn't have those capacities and so to see past the mask
1: or to see you know just to parse of the signals that you're dealing with mm-hmm. um it seems in some ways very subjective i would imagine to other people and And there is a degree of subjectivity to it, absolutely. But I think, you know, we aren't mind readers, but we can get, you know, the more sort of skilled you get, you can get better at sort of pattern recognition and understanding what certain patterns mean. I have seen psychiatrists who get a little too cavalier with that in terms of assuming that something means something about someone's internal state when there are alternative explanations but that yeah, generally what we do is something called the mental status exam which is sort of what we call the psychiatric equivalent of the physical and that looks at various domains of someone just on an interview so there's appearance behavior attitude speech patterns thought process thought content insight judgment and cognitive functioning and so, you're looking at all of these different domains for signals about, you know, based on the clinical picture and everything else you know, to sort of be suggestive of something. And so, what we're looking for is sort of inconsistencies or consistencies with the story, what supports it and what goes against it based on the observations and certain things fit into certain patterns. So, someone saying that they you know, have a million dollars in the bank and that they live in a big mansion, but they're like in totally disheveled clothes and apparently haven't bathed or showered in like two weeks and are rambling periodically. There's an inconsistency there with their story. And so we're looking at how things fit or don't fit together to try to, to make sense of it.
2: And what about the environment itself that the patient finds themselves in? I mean, so they enter into this situation and they are confronted with all these other people who
1: are committed as well. It's an unfamiliar environment. Um, I'll give different perspectives on it. Hospitals do what they can in terms of trying to create a relatively comfortable environment. So whatever, like pleasant lighting and painting and all that stuff. But from the patient experience, yeah, it's terrible because they're going into an environment typically they don't want to be in. They're being held against their will. They can't leave. Generally, most psychiatric hospitals that I've seen, and bigger ones are different, they're a mixed population. And so you have a mix of all of these different psychiatric populations together. So you have people who are depressed next to people who are hallucinating, next to people who might be having alcohol withdrawal or various other issues, or be potentially, and we shouldn't, we generally don't try to, but they could be psychopathic which is, could be people who are dangerous in that way. And generally we shouldn't be hospitalizing people who are psychopathic, but that in the acute sense of someone who is threatening other people, sometimes they do end up in hospitals for various reasons. So basically if you're a depressed person, that's really scary. Like it's incredibly scary to go into that environment. If you are psychotic and paranoid, you're already scared. Generally people are, are you know, in that stage of mind, You're that's a scared state of going into the world and you're going into this environment that's unfamiliar. So no, there's nothing necessarily conducive about it, but there's a mixed constraints here. And I assume you're going to get into the deinstitutionalization and and sort of, you know, starting from Reagan because there's sort of a sociological component to, to that in terms of defunding hospitals and, that that had a big impact where as there's less and less funding the, the systems have only room for basically this crisis management and it's not really um, in any way designed to accommodate the individual patient's experience and what's yeah. best for them. So I guess my last question is
2: just, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think I should know or that we should
1: know? Uh, I appreciate that Jesse's had like a, a difficult experience and I don't know his particular background or, mm-hmm. or reasons for it. I'm sure I'll hear it on the podcast. But I've had to do work with people who were willing to come into therapy to sort of repair their relationship to mental health afterwards. And sometimes it's really sort of tiptoeing because, I mean, I had a patient who had a very severe bipolar disorder and he was traumatized by being hospitalized against his will and had so much anger at the system because of it and very understandable, like it felt horrible for him. But he was also doing incredibly dangerous things. He put himself into situations where he actually got very physically hurt because he was manic, you know, was driving recklessly and, you know, his family was very concerned about him and, and he only got hospitalized once and then we found ways to work around it without him having to be hospitalized. But it was pretty understandable, his perspective, and yet still necessary for his own protection. And that sort of quandary that we, even though we are sentient aware beings mm-hmm. that seemingly should be able to make all decisions for ourselves, That our own brain can betray us, our own senses can betray us, that we can't know and see everything the way that we think we can, and that sometimes other people might see better than us, that we all have Mm -hmm. blind spots, basically, is a tough thing for, I think, all of us to reconcile.
2: The way you phrase that, I think, applies. He he is pretty suspicious of things like therapists and getting treatment and things. Whereas it's like, I have the courage to, you know, I, I see a therapist and all that. So, but yeah, I know that kind of lingering effect is there. And I think, you know, some of what you said, I think he could find heartening. I'm, I'm hoping.
1: For that, I think it's just a matter of, hopefully he can find someone that he can trust. And if you can build that relationship, then it can go from there. Right. Right. Exactly.
0: The last part of this interview has stuck with me. If you have asked for help and been harmed by the treatment you received, how do you repair that relationship how do you feel safe asking for help again what options do you have when you know for certain that you are committable this season uncommittable the person who signs the form that takes you into hospital is not a doctor it's a social worker you look surprised this is important it's very important because i think it's one of the few really Clever things that ever
2: happened in this otherwise chaotic country that I live in.
3: There may be a person who's dealing with their mental health in a way that's maybe not always healthy and adaptive, and you have the family around them who's on the front lines of dealing with those behaviors. And I remember it being really hard to explain to families that inpatient hospitalization is purely for containment and safety.
1: You'd never see that case.
0: It would never stand out. Like I said, no state, zero, indicates in any way that is publicly available how long a person is held.
3: And there isn't any science underneath the diagnoses. They're entirely phenomenological. They are based on symptoms. So philosophically speaking, if I don't have the symptoms of bipolar, I am no longer bipolar. But bipolar is chronic, so shouldn't I still be medicated and I'll become bipolar again if I don't take my meds? Well, I don't take meds, and I haven't had an episode of mania or depression in years. So was I never bipolar? If we don't know the answers to those questions, there's a lot we don't know about who we're locking up and why.
0: Committables produced by Jim McQuaid and Michelle Stockman. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Jesse Mangan. All music is from the song Reasonable by Christopher G. Brown. Additional production for this episode by Brian Patrick Williams.